We're finishing up the second chapter of Luke. So please turn to Luke chapter 2. We'll pick up the story in verse 21. But this morning I wanted to, to point out two things about the life of Jesus. As, as Luke writes his gospel to his friend Theophilus, he's demonstrating to him that this man who is the God-man, the greatest man in the history of the world, comes from very unlikely beginnings. And so he wants his friend Theophilus to be strengthened in his faith, but he needs to understand that, yes, we understand it's an unlikely story. It's precious to us because most of us have heard it our whole life, or if you're a newer Christian, you're getting to know the story, and we start to take things a little for granted. But when you step back away from our Christian understanding of the story and just look at things on face value, it is hard to believe. It is hard to believe. And we're talking about the greatest person in human history. Whether you believe he's the Son of God or not, there can be no denying that Jesus Christ is the most compelling, most fascinating, most talked about, most written about, most debated about, most loved, most hated I'm running out of superlatives. You get the picture. It's not the guy with the beard in the beer commercial who's the most fascinating man on the planet. It's not Time Magazine's man or woman or person or planet or whatever of the year. It's not People Magazine's I'm not even going to say the word person on the planet. It, and yet we understand these things because we all live with celebrity. I don't care what culture you're in, no matter how obscure your culture is, somebody is the celebrity. There's the in crowd and then the others. And... Luke, remember, is writing to a nobleman. He refers to him as most excellent Theophilus, which later he uses as a title for somebody we know was a muckety-muck in Rome. So this is a title of nobility. Living in a culture of celebrity. Rome. The Roman Empire. The grandeur of Rome. I mean, we, we, we spend money to go see the ruins of this place because it was so amazing. And at the top of the heap, the emperor, Caesar, who eventually would say he himself a god. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, at the time that the god, the true god-man entered the world with such humble beginnings, a poser, the Roman emperor. But even within the subculture of Israel, there's celebrity, great celebrity. Chief priests, the scribes, and the most important scribes among the scribes, and the rabbis, and the most important rabbis among the rabbis. Uh, nothing new under the sun. Everybody trying to climb the ladder. More famous, more power, more celebrity, more connected. And we're supposed to believe that the greatest person in human history bypassed all of that. I mean, if, if Jesus came today, if, if God had chosen to bring Jesus into the world in 2016, where would we expect him to be. And I'm not talking about from a Christian perspective, from a worldly perspective. Would, would he show up at Oxford or Harvard or Stanford giving amazing lectures? 
I mean, what kind of titles do you put after your name if you're, if you're Jesus? They, they all fall short. Or would he, would he be in the Oval Office? I'd go for that. <laughs> Amen? Amen. But honestly, as prestigious as that office is, uh, that, that would be uh, selling Jesus short. Would he show up at Davos, Switzerland for the World Economic Summit where the who's who in the world shows up in their $100 million jets complaining about how the rest of us are ruining the climate? (laughs) Or would he show up at the Academy Awards and the Oscar goes to... Or would he get a Nobel Prize? Or an Olympic gold medal? I mean, these are the places where we expect the most fascinating people, the most compelling, the most powerful, the wisest to show up. And when the actual most compelling, most fascinating, wisest, most powerful man shows up, it's in the most unlikely of places. And so Luke writing to most excellent Theophilus, look, I know this is going to sound crazy, (laughs) but listen to the story. And it's hard for us as we read as modern Christians and we know the story and we love the story to really put ourselves in that situation. And we don't realize how many of the stories we love are rooted and grounded in this biblical story. We love rags to riches story. Why do you, why do you think we love that? And, and, and modern naysayers say, oh, I see what the Bible's doing here. They're doing one of those, you know, nobody from nowhere aspires to greatness. And they, they act as if the Bible was written after all these stories we know and love were written. Well, why do you think we love these stories? Because they're grounded in truth. So we're going to look at five unlikely elements to the story of Christ that don't seem to match up with his designation as the greatest person in human history. And then we'll do a little application at the end. The first unlikely element is his unlikely parents. If we were writing the script, Jesus would not have been born to a couple of obscure Jews, an obscure virgin, betrothed to a common carpenter from a no-name town, Nazareth, up in Galilee. Even by Jewish standards, this doesn't make any sense. By the world standards, this is completely ridiculous. Some people would just stop listening to the story right there. They're not even going to get past Luke chapter 1 and 2. I'm done. This guy can't be God. He can't be the greatest. And the word on the street, don't you know, is that Mary wasn't even married. In an honor-shame society, when you're already at the bottom of the bottom on the social ladder, this this put you all the way at the bottom. You know how it's human nature. It's so sad that as long as I feel better than at least one other person, I'm somebody. This puts Mary at the bottom of the ladder as far as the world's concerned. But as far as women are concerned in the history of the world, where is Mary in God's eyes? She's, she's at the top of the ladder. But who, who's she? No, nobody from nowhere. Got herself in trouble. And she was lucky that her husband decided to stay with her. 
we'll hear later in the Gospels that even the Pharisees uh, attack Jesus on this point and insult him. They say, well, at least we know who our father is. But these were humble, devout lovers of God. They, They did their best to keep the law of Moses. And so hard to keep the law of Moses when you're poor. Easy for the the priests, chief priests, the scribes, the elders, those with money who could take a break from their business in order to fulfill the Levitical law. What would that mean for a poor carpenter to stop his business, take his wife, his very pregnant wife, on a long journey to be counted? And then to have to give birth in a strange place. We're not really sure where. But there, there was no room in any of the normal places people would have stayed. I mean, think about the birth of your children. All the excitement and the worry and the, get all the details right. And, and you got the nursery all put together and made sure you had a good OB and... And all of that, it, it, she had to, to go on the road to go be counted and give birth in some kind of stable and place the most fascinating, greatest man in history in a feed trough. I mean, come on, how many of you complained that you had a hand-me-down crib for your baby? Come on, be Be honest. And for all this to happen in Israel, of all places, I don't know if you've noticed, but the world doesn't really like Israel. I mean, to tell people that the king of kings is a Jew is not going to fly with most of the planet. We live in a Judeo-Christian society, and recently... Our own president made an international speech where he accidentally mentioned Jerusalem was in Israel and they had the congressional record expunged. They have policy now that they will never say that Jerusalem is in Israel because Jerusalem is for everybody who lives there and calls that their holy city. And we don't want to recognize Israel as the official state that Jerusalem is in. And so they said, we made an oops, scrub out the word Israel on the official congressional record. And things were no different back then. Although it was a big deal for Herod to be king of the Jews, um, the, the other Roman leaders... You were sent to go watch over Israel almost as a punishment. It was, it was not the, the best assignment. Pilate did not like watching over Israel. But we go back to Jesus' unlikely parents even if we would concede that the most important man in human history was was born into the nation Israel, these two parents wouldn't be who you would think. There was nobility. There, there were important families. There were families that were well-connected, just like in any society. The only thing Mary and Joseph had going for them was that they were in the right lineage, biblically. And that is why Luke includes a genealogy 
and Matthew includes a genealogy. So we have that record that Jesus fulfilled prophecy that he comes from the correct line. But that's about all Mary and Joseph had going for them. You, you, you get the point? You wouldn't pick this family to be the royal family. And they had to go through all, all of the requirements of the Levitical law. And, and Luke records this for us. And we kind of skip over this place in the Bible and don't really think about what this would really entail. We have our own rituals we go through when a new child comes into our home. But this was what was required They had to go from Bethlehem now back up to Jerusalem. And Bethlehem is north, but up because everything in Israel compared to the temple is down. So no matter where you are in the Bible, if you're going to the temple, you're going up to the temple. I kind of speak that way about Tehachapi sometimes. We're going up to Tehachapi. My parents live in Stockton. I say, oh, you guys want to come up for Thanksgiving? My dad always goes down. I'm like, we're at 4,000 feet. You're at sea level. (laughs) Going down to Bakersfield. Right? You with me? Yeah. All right. But... They use this terminology for other reasons because that's where God's glory resided. The temple in Jerusalem. We're going up to Jerusalem, the holy city. The the dwelling place, as it were, of God. They understood theologically that God wasn't contained and limited to Jerusalem, but in some way, His glory was thick in that place at the temple. A big deal to go to Jerusalem. And so it says, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Where is this? This is Leviticus 12. We don't often read from Leviticus, but we have an opportunity this morning to turn to Leviticus. You thought our society was a bit over-regulative. And it is getting ridiculous. But these regulations were for a purpose, and the purpose designed to remind the nation Israel of the fact that they're born into sin and they need a Savior. That only God could provide that cleansing. All of the Levitical law designed to remind them of that. That you are to be a holy people because you serve a holy God and the problem is you're not holy. And only God can prescribe the means by which we become holy. You can't self-designate yourself holy. Only God can declare you holy. So Leviticus 12, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation shall she be unclean. On the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. This was the sign of the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And that sign entailed that uh, the, the foreskin represented the sin nature and that it's to be cut away. Now, later we understand God would say that if we really want our sin nature cut away, he would have to circumcise our what? Our hearts. And that's what happens when we place our faith in Christ. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days. Hey, how come with a girl it's twice as long as with a guy? Another sermon. Different sermon. What? Too, too long to explain. 
for this sermon. So, lots of theories, not one answer. So, it would be one of those sermons where, okay, here's, here's this idea, this idea, this idea, and here's the evidence for each of these ideas. But if you want the Cliff, Cliff Notes version, probably has something to do with Eve and original sin. Not to say that sin enters through the mother. There's that theory, but Adam's our federal head. So I wouldn't say that necessarily sin enters the human race through woman. But Paul does say in the New Testament that women can be redeemed through childbirth. And he obviously doesn't mean you get saved when you give birth to children. But in a sense, because the Savior of the world came through woman, uh, redemption came through the woman. Just as the fall came through woman, redemption would come in a way through, through the woman. So maybe that's why there's something to do here with, with the disparate amount of times that she would be unclean. All I can say to all of that is praise the Lord that Jesus fulfilled the law and we don't have to do that anymore. Amen. Amen. Hard enough being a mom. Amen. But you think about what Mary had to go through and no... No modern transportation, no meal train, nobody's bringing her meals once a day, you know. Um, no, no modern hospital. And on top of everything that's already difficult about motherhood, they were devout and they trusted in the Lord and they wanted to be obedient to His Word. And we see that all throughout the beginning of Luke's Gospel whether it's Zacharias and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, that it said they, they were righteous. And we know it wasn't their works that made them righteous. But what the Bible's referring to is that they had faith in God and their life demonstrated that they had faith. It is by faith that we will be declared righteous, right? Amen, Old Testament and New Testament. The just shall live by faith. Paul says, by the works of the law shall no man be justified. But they wanted to be faithful to the Levitical law. And that meant they'd have to go up to the temple and they would have to make a sacrifice. This ought to put the final nail in the coffin of the idea that Mary was was without sin. Why is she making an atonement for her sins if she's sinless? Mary's an extraordinary woman. She was the mother of God's son, but she's a sinner like us and needed a savior. When the days of her purification are completed for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. And she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or a female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. And Luke indicates that they brought two turtle doves or two young pigeons, which tells us what? They couldn't afford a lamb. The, the parents of the greatest man, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the most important figure in human history, couldn't afford a lamb. Now, talk about things being theologically pregnant. They had a lamb. Yeah, right? They had the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and they give pigeons. Well, that's rich, right? You've you got to love the more you dig into the Word of God, how it just all fits together. You can't make this stuff up. It's, it's uncanny. It's... When they get to the temple, we're going to meet 
a pair of unlikely witnesses. Now, if you're trying to convince the world that this is the most compelling man who's ever lived and he's the son of God, you would need witnesses. And the the more prestigious the witness, the better. Right? When somebody goes on trial and you want to call a witness, you want to get the expert, the best of the best. And those expert scientific witnesses probably uh, earn big money doing that. Who who would who would we think would be like the best witnesses? The, the high priest, or the most famous rabbi of the time, and we we know who those rabbis were from Josephus, the historian. Uh, the scribes were like lawyers, so like who who's who's the the chief scribe? He'd make a good witness. Um, you wouldn't choose a woman because they weren't even allowed to be witnesses. So who's it going to be? Who's the witness? Someone bright and famous and erudite and held in the highest esteem in the culture? Well, the first witnesses were shepherds, right? Right? Lowly, stinky shepherds doing the job nobody else wanted to do. But when they get to the temple to dedicate Jesus, we get this very old man named Simeon. I see Donnell's over there. They have a Simeon. It's a really old Simeon. This guy's really old. He was basically waiting to die. Old. But the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that you wouldn't see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. What a gift that would be. He has no title. And Luke gives us titles if there's titles. No title. We don't know why he's at the temple. Maybe he's just the old guy who hangs out at the temple. Right? And he prophesies. And you know, sometimes when you read these biblical prophecies, they kind of come out like, huh? I wonder, I don't even know what that means. You know, they're, sometimes they're very cryptic. And I, I would imagine, I'm using my sanctified imagination, that if you're a really, really old guy who sometimes prophesies, you probably get confused with an old guy who's just... Saying crazy stuff. We don't know anything else about the Simeon. Luke says he was righteous and devout. Again, another righteous and devout person. He, he kept the Levitical law. His faith was in God. He revered God. He feared the Lord. This is what is meant by righteous and devout. Doesn't mean he's perfect. Doesn't mean he was sinless. But certainly, if you're going to have somebody be a witness to God's Son, you would want somebody who believes in God and lives a life accordingly. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, and we get this unlikely prophecy. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Nathan preached on this a while back. Uh, What do you mean all peoples? It's the consolation of Israel. This is for Israel. This is for us. Not all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles. It's in all caps in my translation because it means it's quoting from the Old Testament. So even though an unlikely prophecy, we understand not so far-fetched. The Old Testament speaks plenty of God 
blessing the nations, even the Gentiles. But at this time, culturally, Messiah was not coming to bless Gentiles. The Gentiles were the problems. The Gentiles were Rome. They are the enemy. And Messiah would come to crush them. And here's this elderly man who hangs out at the temple and he gives this prophecy about this baby being a a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And it says his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Even though the Lord had revealed to them who their baby would be, you got to think about all that's going on and all the traveling and all the stress and all that. These are human beings, Mary and Joseph. We, we read we read one line about an angel appearing to them and then we assume, we forget their humanity and say, well, if, if the angel told you this is who he's going to be, then, you know, how many times do you read something from the Bible and five minutes later you act as if you hadn't read it? You know, what does this mean? All these people making a fuss about our, our child and this kind of cryptic prophecy. Like, Think about it. Think about things you were worried about as young parents. Like, well, I, I got to feed this kid and diaper him and make sure he doesn't get sick. And and then an old guy at the temple, and you're just going up to the temple to, to fulfill the Levitical law, and this old guy says, let me hold your, your child, and speaks these prophetic words over him. I'm kind of like, can I have my child back, you know? What does this mean? And it's difficult for any of us as parents to keep intention that this, these children are mine, but, it, but they're the Lord's. I, I'm raising them so someday they can go out into the, the world for the Lord. They're mine for a season, but they belong to the Lord. Imagine what Mary has to grapple with. She wasn't even expecting to have a child. She wasn't even married yet. She was a virgin. Uh, must be a whirlwind of confusion and anxiety. And what's going to happen next? And talk about just sometimes, uh, I mean, did they have the sleep deprivation? Did Jesus wake up in the middle of the night? It's not sinful to wake up in the middle of the night and want to eat. They've been walking all over Israel. They're amazed about the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, for a sign to be opposed. What what does that mean? I mean, we know what that means, but what did that mean for them? They weren't expecting this when they got to the temple. We understand that the fall for those who are mighty and proud and really don't love God their rejection of Jesus would lead to their fall and those who are humble and receive Jesus as Lord and Messiah, that this child is appointed for your, your rise. And, and theologically, we'll rise again with him after death. And for a sign to be opposed, and we realize most people will end up opposing Jesus, both during his ministry And in the 2,000 years to follow, most people oppose him. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. He's speaking directly to Mary. How would you like that prophetic word spoken to you as a very young, scared mother? What what does that mean? Some commentators think it means that the pain and the heartache of seeing her son crucified is what is being referred to here. And certainly that's in view, but I think there's more here to to that than just that pain and that sorrow. Because it goes on to say, to the end, or for the purpose, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And we... 
we understand how the word of God, Hebrew says, is a double-edged sword and it pierces, right? It gets down to the deepest part of your soul. And Mary is different than all of us in the sense that she's the only one who can call Jesus her, her child. But she's no different than the rest of us that she will have to come to grips and decide who is this Jesus and how should I respond to him? How much harder for a mother who has all the emotions of motherhood and wanting to protect her baby boy. It's hard enough cutting the apron strings, right, moms? Amen. But she would have to come to grips with the fact that her son came to die and give his life as a ransom for many, herself included. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. It would be strange not to speak the prophecy to the father Joseph. You, culturally, you address the father. So even the way the prophecy was given is so unlikely. And I think there's one more place we hear about Joseph and then he's gone. We don't even find out what happened to him. We assume that, that he died. And, um, and, but, but the Bible doesn't refer to Mary as a widow directly. It's, it's, Joseph did what God called him to do as the temporary earthly father of Jesus. But by the time we get to the beginning of Jesus' ministry at the wedding feast in Cana, we don't see Joseph. And we begin to see this separation, Jesus, from his mother. She said, they've run out of wine and, you know, do, go do your thing, right? And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And instead of calling her mother, he uses the term woman. Not in a derogatory sense, but that separation beginning to occur. And then later we see, when we see Jesus preaching at one point, the crowd says, hey, your family's looking for your mother and your brothers. They're looking for you. And he says, Who are my, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? These followers of mine, these are my mothers and my brothers. Now, I know some of you have estranged children, and I can't imagine how hurtful that is, but Mary had to go through this period of her child separating from her. He had a bigger calling, greater calling. Another unlikely witness, we get this prophetess, uh, verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. Just a word about prophetesses. <laughs> we have Anna, and I love the detail that Luke gives us here. Uh, this is an actual person. It's not a made-up thing. She's Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, from the tribe of Asher. You, you, you could trace it. And she hung out, it turns out, at the temple most of her adult life as a widow. So people knew who Anna was. Uh, some versions say Hannah. Some say Anna. It's the same name. The Bible mentions this prophetess, four prophetesses of Philip, but we don't ever hear what they prophesy, and we don't hear what Anna prophesies. There's some prophetesses in the Old Testament, including uh, Deborah, um, and so you have a decision that you need to make in your spiritual walk about what you want to do with prophets and prophetesses. I've, I've already preached on what our view of, uh, as a church is on the gift of prophecy, that it was different than the apostolic gift of prophecy. But there's other people who say, look, if there, if there was a prophetess and it was normal and people expected there to be prophetesses, then there should be prophetesses today and prophets today. 
And we shouldn't muzzle the Bible because it's something that we're uncomfortable with and doesn't make sense. And so they take a little bit of information and turn it into this huge thing. And, and I used to attend a, a charismatic church where lots of prophesying was going on. And, and, and it was normal in, in that church. And there were rules that weren't biblical rules that attempted to govern and keep it in, within boundaries. And, and these were, I believe, good and godly people. And this is the way that they decided to live out their faith. And yet, I have come to the conclusion personally that if the Bible says so little about something that is so important, speaking on behalf of God, that caution ought to be the word that governs us. Can God do this? Yes. Does he do this? Even biblically, it didn't happen very often. Otherwise, it's not special. And have I seen it abused? You bet. It's an easy way for prideful men and women to go around and elevate themselves above everybody else because God told me this. And we all know I have the gift of prophecy. Well, God told me this. And so one of the rules that governs prophecy in charismatic churches is the prophetic word that is uttered should match up with Scripture. So he says, then what's the point? It's superfluous. If you're just saying what Scripture says, then I have Scripture. If you're saying something that Scripture doesn't say, then we're supposed to ignore that. So... Personally, I've come to the conclusion that I'll stick with God's Word. And sometimes as I'm studying and reading God's Word, God convicts my heart in a way that seems different than normally. And so I need some kind of theological category for that. And we like to use words like God placed it on my heart or God impressed upon me. And that's as far as I go. And I'm very cautious with that because I know my fallen flesh can fool me into picking just the right verse that will back up just the thing that I want in the moment, right? If anything, we should learn to be suspicious of our desires. And so, that's all I've got to say about prophecy, right? I feel like Forrest Gump. Back to the story here. The point being that here's this woman who's not, in this culture, a legitimate witness. God is using this female prophetess as a witness. And so it just adds to the unlikeliness of the whole story. She's, uh, she was advanced in years. That's a nice way of saying really old. We could tell one another, I'm advanced in years. How old are you? Oh, I'm advanced in years. That, that sounds a lot nicer than really old. She was really old. We're not sure how really old because it's hard to translate the Greek. Either the Greek says she was a widow and then was a widow up to the age of 84, or it means she has been a widow for 84 years. So when you add the seven years she was married and then however old she was when she was married, she may be close to 100. Either way, she's advanced in years. And she hangs out at the temple day and night, fasting and praying. Some might call her crazy. There's no official place for a woman at the temple to live and serve. In fact, there's an outer court and she would not be allowed past a certain point. And how did she get her sustenance? And she fasted a lot. And so she ate when she could, I guess. I can't even imagine this. Let's be honest. You can't imagine this. Dedicating 84 plus years of your life to hanging out at the temple, fasting and praying. What a devout woman of God. What faith? 
we would say she's crazy. Come on, even, even faithful Christians would say, whoa, that's, that's not normal. These were the people God chose to be witnesses. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. At this point, I was reading a commentary by John Piper who mentions that we now have four witnesses advanced in age. Zacharias, Elizabeth, Simeon, and Anna. Now, age was more respected in their culture than ours. So, it's, it's not strange that old, older people would be witnesses. In fact, they may, in that culture, be more credible. In our culture today, it seems the older you get, the less credible you become in society. That's so five minutes ago, right? You know, I hear the young people aren't doing Facebook anymore because the old people do Facebook. <laughs> and they don't want to be associated with anything old. Or, or it takes too much attention span. So now it's Snapchat. And no cat videos on Facebook. They need vines, which were what, six-second six videos? Or eight seconds? I think it's six. That's the rule. Your vine video can only be like six seconds. So, Nevertheless, Piper goes on to say that the way he sees this is that here are these Old Testament saints who have faithfully and diligently kept the law, but they have some knowledge that God is going to do something new. And they're excited for the new. Which is strange because, I'm going to be honest with our senior saints, you guys don't like new. It makes you nervous. I still get senior saints saying, well, when he gets older, I'm still waiting to get older. Nathan and I were joking about this the other day. We're pretty sure people think we're like he's 25 and I'm 28. Uh, I guess there could be worse things in life than being considered young. This bridging between the old covenant and the new, these four senior saints, so to speak, excited about the birth of this baby because they know what he represents and they've been waiting for it their whole life. We get to Jesus' unlikely childhood. There's not much written about his childhood. Come on, for, for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the most fascinating person in the world, if you went to go read a biography, you'd want to know the, the childhood years. That's an important part, right? A very kindly member of our church treated Jennifer and I uh, yesterday to that Bakersfield Business Conference. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, you got to hear, we got to hear uh, Lou Holtz speak and Ben Carson and Herman Cain and lots of people we wish were <laughs> the people we could vote for. Uh, a panel with Rick Perry and uh, Bobby Jindal and Bill Richardson and just a really neat event. Not something Jennifer and I would normally get to go do. We're very thankful if, if you're out there to our anonymous host. Thanks. It's a great, great Saturday. But all of them, a little thing would scroll across the bottom of the screen because there were like 7,000 people in this tent and, you, you know, you can't see the guy up there. So they have the big screen TVs and it says, so-and-so will be in the book signing tent. They all have a book. And it's always about their childhood, especially these people who were former candidates who didn't make the cut you got to write a book about your childhood and convince people to, I should be someone you should be excited about and, and want to vote for president. You know, the, the, the most important figure in human history has a biography too. Um, bestseller of all time. 
pretty easy to have a New York Times bestseller, and I just need 100,000 copies sold. Um, that, this one blows that away. Um, he won't be signing autographs after, but he, he's offering eternal life to all who place their faith in him. Uh, autographs fade, relationships forever. And you go to these events because you want just a little piece of celebrity, just rub shoulders, just somehow vicariously kind of live life with the Magic Johnson spoke. People are so excited to hear him speak, and really all he did was talk about how I was a millionaire NBA player and then a multi-millionaire businessman and now a billionaire, and come take your picture with me. And he was walking around the crowd and stopping at tables and selfies and and um, it was a business conference, so he's supposed to explain to us all how we could become billionaires, but he didn't even try. It's just not going to happen for you. Let's face it. I was the tallest, strongest point guard in the history of the NBA, and, and I made millions. And now I have billions. Come take your picture with me. I'll sign your book. Sign my book. And somehow uh, getting that picture with him is supposed to make us feel somehow more alive and a little bit better about ourselves. And here's the most compelling figure in human history who says, I'm not celebrity, I'm the son of God. And if you put your faith in me, you can have eternal life. Everlasting, eternal relationship with me. And not only that, I'll dwell inside you and I'll change you into my image. I'm never going to be like Magic Johnson. I'm short by his standards and not really good at basketball. And Nathan was really good at basketball, but he figured out in college, I need a different job. <laughs> it's just not, not going to happen. And yet, unlike every other celebrity in the history of the world, Jesus Christ is offering us eternal life and we get to be like him literally. All these other posers are like, you can be like me. And then they get off stage and, they, and probably in the green room, they're all like, yeah, right. These losers are never going to be like any of us. Uh, comedian Tim Hawkins likes to say, look, folks, the only difference between you and me is I have a microphone and talent. Other, other than that, there's no, you know, there's no difference. And we know that we'll, we'll, never, we'll never have that kind of life. We'll always be the outsiders looking in, but the real, the true God of the world offers us to be part of his family and become like his son. It's so unlikely and yet so compelling. And you see the world scurrying around trying to be famous and be a somebody by the world standards. And God says, I can do this for you and it's free. It's a gift. My son died for you. But you have to want the gift not so you can be famous and you can be celebrity, but so that you could decrease and Christ could increase. And, and then you find what you've been searching for your whole life. Acceptance and, and love. And I don't have to impress anyone anymore. I can't impress God. But in Christ, I'm accepted. And not only accept it, I'm in the family. And so we read the story before we started this morning about Jesus. He didn't wander off. This wasn't a sinful... I wasn't thinking about my parents' concerns and I sinfully uh, abandoned them. He was in the temple. He's 12. He's not an adult yet. So this is a very unlikely story because if you're 12, you're not allowed to be where he was in the temple talking with the rabbis and the muckety-mucks. He's not an adult yet. And even if he was 13, he probably wouldn't have been allowed in those circles. Get this kid out of here. We were thinking about this story from the human perspective and like when you lo lose your kid in the market and you panic. Do you imagine walking home from the Passover? I mean, all of Israel had to come to the Passover. The, the mass of humanity, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the thieves, 
They're all there. I mean, just going there, if you have any problems with anxiety as a mom or a dad, you wouldn't even want to bring your kids to this. I mean, it's just overwhelming. I mean, even a church this size, sometimes like on a Wednesday night or Sunday morning, you're like, ah, where's my kid? You know, can't find him. Could you imagine taking your little ones to Passover? And you went as a whole family. It says there was a caravan, not a Dodge caravan. (laughs) A group of family and friends that all went together. And they just assumed Jesus was with other relatives. Not quite home alone. But pretty scary when you realize, wait a minute, where's Jesus? And you've been traveling for a while. Hard to turn around and go back. Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? I mean, we say that today, but it means something different, right? Have you found Jesus? Have you found Jesus? And they realized that, that I guess they left him behind and, and they had to go back for him. And it says three days they searched for him and, and, and that would probably be uh, one day where the day they realized the day of travel and then the day of looking for him. And you know, in the Jewish reckoning, any part of a day is three days. Jesus was in the tomb three days, part of one night, all day Saturday, part of Sunday, three days. So we don't have to assume that it was three long 24-hour days they were searching for him. But still, nerve-wracking And they go back and they finally find him in the temple. And it's the first time in the story where something actually kind of makes sense. Because this is where we'd expect the Son of God, the smartest, the wisest, the most compelling man to ever live, to show up. Just not at 12. Holding court. Asking questions. Which in that culture, when you're asking questions of people, you're here and they're here. They asked him questions. He was answering. They're amazed by his answers. And then he asked some questions. Something special about this kid. But his mom's, she's a regular mom. She says, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Right? That's, you find your kid after church or, or in the market And you're like, are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Good, because I'm going to kill you. (laughs) You are in so much trouble. Wait till you get home. And we get this unlikely response. Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Which as Christians, again, makes perfect sense to us. And we've heard the story so many times. But think about it, people. Nobody in biblical history to this point had ever referred to God as Father. She said, don't you know you just, you made your father and I worried? I was in my father's house. And they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. Like, how could they not understand? No, it makes sense that they don't understand. Nobody has said this before, ever. It's blasphemous to say it if you're not the son of God. Because for God to be your father, to be a son of the father in that culture meant you were equal with your father. Everything that the father owned is yours. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? This is where I belong. This is who I am. This is what I'm called to do. And they had some sense of the fact that they had a child that wasn't like the normal child. But we don't know what went on from age 1 to 12. Other than he had to grow up and he went outside to play, I'm sure, and had to eat and All the things normal children do. And then one day you lose him at Passover. You find him and he says, I had to be in my father's house. And you find out he's been holding court with all the most learned theologians, scribes, religious leaders. And he's not only holding his own, but he is 
asking them questions that they don't they can't answer Jesus' first recorded words in the Bible as, as a human. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? And at that moment, everything must have changed for Joseph and Mary. Everything. All, whatever plans. I mean, because you've got to make plans. You know, is he going to be a carpenter? He's going to follow in dad's footsteps. You know, all the things you think about with your kids. You know, what are they going to be? And how do we help them get there? And this is much bigger than all of that. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them because he was still their child. And he wasn't yet an adult. And Jesus was perfect. And he kept the law perfectly and submitted to his parents. And it says, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And that's my application for you as, as we wrap up. To treasure, uh, the words dia tereo in, in the Greek, tereo just means to keep. And then you put dia on the front, like diameter. To, to, to keep in total, to keep all the way across. Treasure makes it sound more like she was like, like, oh, this is wonderful, and oh, it's my favorite thought. It's it's not really capturing dia tereo. Dia tereo is to hold closely in her heart and ponder these things. What do they mean? What what is this boy going to be? And how do I mother him? And And in the meantime, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Good storytelling fashion. We have this pivotal moment and then kind of this linking statement to say, and, and then some more time passed and he, he grew up some more. And the next time we see him, he'll be a full-grown man and his ministry is going to launch. But in the meantime, I want you to think this week about treasuring these truths about Jesus in your heart. He's, he's not like what we would expect from the world standard of who the greatest man in history would be. I mean, this is important during this election season. Forget about all the celebrities and all the candidates and all the talking heads because at the end of the day, the only person who really matters is Jesus Christ. Yes, these things matter, but only in when they're put in their proper place. And we can so easily get everything out of its proper place. And then our lives are filled with anxiety. I know we have young people in here who aspire to celebrity. Forget about it. It's a fool's errand. Be a nobody to the world and exchange it for being a somebody in God's family. That's, that's all that matters. I'm a somebody in God's family. I'm more than a somebody. I'm a child of God. And he's conforming me into the image of the most compelling, fascinating, powerful, loving, courageous, sacrificial person who's ever lived. What could be better than that calling on your life to get to be like Jesus? Treasure that up in your heart this week. Turn off the internet and turn off Fox News and turn off CNN and just shut it all down and ponder this in your heart. And forget what the world thinks. We have the mind of Christ. So let's live like it and teach people like it and show people what this means. Father, God, the fact that we could call you Father is almost incomprehensible, Lord. And yet, we take it for granted. Thank you, Jesus, Son of God, for giving us a way to be children of God. And through faith in you, to have 
our sins forgiven and be declared truly righteous. And now, like these other righteous saints, we can witness for you. And we may not be the kinds of witnesses that the elite are looking for, but it's the kind of witnesses God has historically chosen. Not many the wise, not many the strong, not the rich and the powerful and the famous. May we be faithful witnesses to you, Lord Jesus, and may being part of your family be more than enough for us. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen.